Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and that eolistic doucher made it into the news again today. Oh? Remember, I, well, sort of, I sent you that article from the New York Times? Oh, yes, about BTK's daughter. Yes, and that word, eolistic, means describing of a long-winded boar. Oh, that's definitely Dennis Rader. Yeah. He, him and Gary Ridgway. He just talked and talked yeah. and talked about nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he made it into the news today um, because his daughter, Carrie? I want to say her name's Carrie? Anyhow, um, she is like starting to see him um, to aid the police in identifying, identifying more victims. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like they've maybe linked him to, to two additional unsolved murders yeah. so far. So she didn't see him for a long time because of, you know, it's him being a serial killer on all. <laughs> right, right. But she's done lots of therapy and work on it and she wants to like try to help. So she's been seeing him at the prison and he's been apparently giving her information that she's then giving to the police and they're putting some stuff together. Right. So good on her. That's got to be really hard. Definitely. Yeah. But I liked how she phrased it because um, I read that article mm-hmm. that you sent me um, that she realized like going in there now, he's just like a frail old man. Yeah. yeah he's he in a wheelchair. Or something. Yep. Yeah. And so like he's not this big, scary person anymore and he can't hurt anybody anymore. Yeah, totally. So yeah, um, we have a new case today. One thing I want to say before we start this case is it was brought to my attention pretty much the day that it was released that Teresa Noor Part 2 sounded really, really wonky for some reason, um, and I re-uploaded it as soon as I found out, but some of the people that might have um, had like an automatic download would have that wonkiness, and there there is a way to... <laughs> like delete that one and then re-upload it again and it's uploaded properly now so it's not supposed to sound like that I had one of my friends reach out hi Sarah and say she thought maybe it was like a Halloween prank and she tried to hang in there um but it's not (laughs) no we did not try and speak 12 times slower than normal it reminded me a little bit of um like Twin Peaks I don't know that you watch that, but Twin Peaks, I love Twin Peaks and the way that they would make like the devil dance or talk was like they would record forward and then play it backwards or no, he would talk backwards and they would play it forward, something like that. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me of that, like creepy sounding. Right. (laughs) But that was an accident. So there is a real Teresa Noor part two out there that sounds normal. So please listen to it. Yes. Yes. Please do. And tell your friends to also listen to it. Yeah, totally. Um, I have a question, Courtney. All right, go for it. So we're both well into our first term, semester, whatever it is of school. Mm -hmm. Can you think of something you learned last week? Oh, that's a good question. And I can pause if you need time to ponder. I might need a minute. Okay. All right. So after a moment of thinking... I, one of the things that we learned about last week in my um, adult learning class is how to set up and present a remediation plan in case you have a student who you might need to expel from your program. Remediation. Yep. What does that word mean? That means basically like, here's your plan. 
and you have to do these things. And if you don't succeed at these things, then you're kicked out. No, oh, mm-hmm. that's not a fun conversation it's to have not. with a client. Yeah, not even with a client, with like a student. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right, because you're doing learning how to teach. Yep. Well, so one of my classes, I mean, I've only taken two classes so far, mm-hmm. but the my psychology and law class, I am just loving it. Like, I am learning so much shit in that class, and not good stuff. Mm. I mean, I'll tell you, don't ever waive your Miranda rights. Oh, no. Don't ever do it, even if you're completely innocent. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also learning that like eyewitness testimony is really, really skewed. Very unreliable. Very unreliable. And unfortunately, juries believe a very confident witness and Mm -hmm. a lot of eyewitness testimony is wrong, just wrong. Mm -hmm. And so many wrongful convictions are based on erroneous eyewitness testimony and it's scary if you look at the the statistics right especially with um stranger identifications Mm -hmm. and especially then ones that cross like racial lines yes yes Mm -hmm. and also the rate of false confessions are like i think it was 30 percent of confessions are false and those are even more likely to get a jury to convict than eyewitness testimony so Mm -hmm. man there are a lot of innocent people in jail, I really feel. Yeah. And that means there's a lot of buttholes walking around out there who actually did the crimes. Yes. Anyways, it's just, um, yeah, I'm learning all kinds of things, and it's some of it's kind of scary. So, but <laughs> let's move on to our new case. Which is, you know, not necessarily going to be a happier topic. No. But, um, but so- at least this guy was caught. Yes. Um, many times, <laughs> of course, you know, the recidivism of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I Googled today cause I was like, gosh, I feel like Oregon does have a lot of serial killers. And I was like, Google, cause I had never heard of this dude. So I Googled, you know, Oregon serial killers and it was like all these top 10 lists and you know, who keep top topping number one, hmm. Ted Bundy. Oh, he was barely here. Yeah, I know. I was like, I mean, I think maybe he killed a person or one person from Oregon was up in Washington. Right. Or he like crossed state lines to, to bury the person. Yeah. Or... And Gary Ridgway's on some of those lists for the no. same reason. I know. They're Washington killers. Let's yes. Be real. Yes. So it's annoying. But this guy actually came in number two behind Ted Bundy in a couple of these lists. Oh. Yeah. And then right. there were like five others that I hadn't heard of either. So. Future uh, cases. Yeah. I mean, of course. Uh, Randy Woodfield and Jerry Brutos were on those lists as well. Right. But this dude is named Dayton Leroy Rogers. And the book we're using for this is called Bloodlust, Bloodlust, Portrait of a Serial Sex Killer, Businessman, Family Man, Savage Murderer. And it's by Gary King. So, shall we get started? Let's do it. Okay. Dayton Leroy Rogers was born September 30th, 1953 in Moscow, Idaho, to a devout Seventh-day Adventist family. He had two biological sisters and three adopted sisters and an adopted brother. So apparently Dayton's father, whose name was Otis, or sorry, Ortis Noble Rogers, didn't like children, his biological ones or his adopted ones. However, his mother, Jasperell, loved children and wanted to be a housewife and mother, and as we may surmise, 
the decision maker as well. You know, being that they had so many kids, I think we can assume that Jasperell made those types of decisions. Courtney, this is a weird dynamic. A father who isn't interested or maybe even annoyed by the thought of having children and a mother who seems to only want children. What are your feelings about the amount of kids they produce biologically and adopted? You know, I don't necessarily think that a woman wanting many children and her husband not being interested in children is so unusual for the 1950s. You know, being a housewife and raising children was kind of the expectation for most women during that time, although having and or wanting seven children was less common by then. That was much more common um, in, you know, older times when they were sort of needed to help run the family businesses and whatnot. Or the farms. Right, right. Um, But it's still not unheard of. Um, And, you know, also during this time, it was also kind of expected that men would be the breadwinners and provide financially, but there was not really any expectation that they actually participate in child rearing. Well, Artis, Ortis, sorry, I want to call him Otis because this is a, it's an odd name that I've not heard of before. Ortis. Both of his parents had odd names. Yeah, just Spirell and Ortis. Like, mm-hmm. I like them. They're just not ones I'm used to saying. Mm-hmm. He worked hard to keep a roof, roof over their heads and all of those mouths fed Uh, I guess he was successful in doing that, but there was very little extra money to go around. Per the the book we're using, Ortis considered his role as to be the disciplinarian. Quote, having old-fashioned ideas about sex and religion to the extreme, Ortis was a strong believer in harsh discipline and punishment, which he doled out regularly. It wasn't uncommon for Ortis to suddenly attack one of the children in an inappropriately intense fashion that often left the child bleeding or covered with bruises. So often his attacks were random and he wouldn't bother to explain why he did what he had done. He would never apologize and seem to rationalize his behavior to himself. The kids didn't know if they ever deserved the punishment or if they were just being tortured for no reason. Courtney? So this type of physical abuse um, can actually be the most damaging for children when it comes to physical abuse. You know, when a child is punished physically after they have clearly broken a rule or something like that, then at least they know what behavior to not do again. But when physical abuse is doled out randomly, there's no predictability to it, and children begin to believe that they deserve to be hurt just for existing. So, and then they're on high alert all the time. Yes. Because anything they do could inflict some sort of punishment. Right. And they could do something one day, and the next day it would be unacceptable. Yeah. So we have a family dynamic that we've seen kind of play out before. You know, a mother that is domineering and running the household and a father with a quick and violent temper. A future brother-in-law of Dayton shared that every time he would go over to the house, Dayton would receive some kind of punishment, a slap, a hit with a belt, or a punch. One time, Dayton was made to sit in a chair and Ortis punched his legs with his fists. After this, the crowd would sympathize with Ortis because he broke a blood vessel in his hand from beating Dayton so savagely. Ortis would beat all of his children, but Dayton was, quote, so under his control that he would sit there and take it. He wouldn't even move his hands to protect himself. What do you think about that, Courtney? When children are systematically abused over time, they often learn that fighting back or resisting just makes the abuse worse. So they start to just accept the abuse that's given as a way to survive. And I do think, though, that it's interesting that 
other family members would so openly fawn over Ortis. Mm -hmm. But I suppose that was likely a survival mechanism as well. You know, if they showed sympathy and care for Ortis, then maybe he would be less likely to attack them next time. Um, But I also think that there somehow is a connection between Dayton being the primary target for Ortis and his being Ortis's only biological male child. Yeah. Yeah. Ortis was also very rigid in his attitude towards sex. He felt he had a right to sex. He felt that he needed it. It was essential to his life. He would preach about the children having evil inside of them. There was a sex-crazed entity inside of them that he was determined to exercise through preaching church doctrine. The family read the Bible at home, attended church, and went to church-run schools. Ortis also was very strict about censorship. He had to have approval on all things watched or read or listened to. Quote, Ortis went so far as to dress the hula dancers clad in grass skirts on the covers of his collection of Hawaiian record albums by drawing clothes on their bodies with black felt pens so that they wouldn't be exposing any flesh except on their face and hands. He also taught his daughters that if they had sex prior to marriage or, you know, if they necked on dates, then they should be stoned, just as they would do in the Bible. Courtney, how does growing up with this kind of religious zealousness alter a child's mental health? And what do you think is up with Ortis? So actually recently, there's been more attention paid to what's referred to as religious trauma or spiritual abuse. Um, And so this can include things like manipulation, degradation, and abuse that's done either by a religious figure or group or is done in the name of a religious belief. So a lot of like examples come from um, like the fundamentalist LDS church mm-hmm. um, or cults, religious cults, mm-hmm. that kind of thing where people are subjected to pretty terrible things in the name of whatever yeah. they're worshiping. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when children grow up in families with very strict religious rules, and are then subject to maltreatment in the name of this religion, it can lead to increased feelings of shame and self-hatred because not only have they let their parents down, but now they've also let God down, and that is just irredeemable. Hmm. Well, this family moved around a lot, up to four times a year. Ortis would take work all over the place, doing various things, and that would mean the family changed locations along with his work. The kids struggled to make friends because of the constant moving. Some on the outside said that the parents were so emotionally insecure that they feared that the children making any real connection would take that love that was reserved for the parents and transfer it to the others. Courtney, have you heard of something like this? I have heard of this kind of type of belief, mostly in the context of families where there are poor boundaries and often abuse. Keeping children isolated from their peers and society is one way that parents maintain control. If they don't develop relationships with others, then the risk of the abuse being found out is lowered. Also, it is common in abusive relationships for the abusers to manipulate their victim into believing that the love between them is all that they need and that anyone outside that little system is untrustworthy or just trying to hurt them. 
Well, to make things even more chaotic for the children, their parents were also very much into thinking that Armageddon was going to happen and they would need to be away from the, quote, wicked big city influence. So that meant that they lived far away from towns and therefore away from any real socialization opportunities. Sometimes they had no electricity. Sometimes they lived in cars. One time the family lived in a chicken coop that had a dirt floor and they attempted to turn it into a house. Most of the time, the family lived in just very tight quarters. And this is the time that Dayton began to have an unusual, unusual interest in his sister's feet. Dayton would go to sleep thinking about his sister's feet and would masturbate to these visuals. Dayton would, let her t- Dayton would later tell an unlikely story that his sisters became sex workers and would force themselves on Dayton. It's most not likely true, but he did say it. Courtney, is this about the age that one starts developing fetishes? I think he was about 12. Yes, so right around that time of puberty and our first sexual awakenings, that's also when fetishes get started. Okay. So now he's in College Place, Washington, when he was in middle school. He and his uh, father both worked at a bakery owned by a family member. He didn't do well in school. He wasn't dull. He just didn't care. In seventh grade, he and a friend got in trouble by the police for shooting a BB gun at passing cars. He, of course, got the shit beaten out of him by his father for this. Dayton would continue to be punished more and more, harsher and harsher as he aged. He grew to hate his father and all the things he stood for, and he grew to hate his mother because she did not protect him from the abuse he suffered from the hands of Ortis. After the BB gun incident, Dayton was sent to Columbia Academy, which was a church boarding school in Spangle, Washington. Have you heard of Spangle? I have not heard of Spangle. It must be very small. Yeah. His grades got worse, but his parents moved soon after to Pleasant Hill, Oregon, which is about eight miles away from us in Eugene. Mm -hmm. His grades dropped again, and he eventually dropped out at age 16. He moved away from his parents at this time and went to Corvallis, Oregon, where he got a job as a house painter. And in July of 1972, he moved to Eugene. He met a girl in Eugene, a 16-year-old named Julie. They would soon marry. Against his parents' wishes, which I'm sure helped push things along, less than a month after his marriage, he got in trouble with Johnny Law. Poor the book, he, without prior warning, attacked a 15-year-old Eugene girl with a knife. So, Courtney, lots of changes and violent tendencies emerging here. Yes. So, between the constant moving, the unpredictable abuse at the hands of his father, and social isolation... It is not a surprise that Dayton would demonstrate impulsive and disorganized behavior patterns. And without his parents there to enforce their beliefs and rules on him, Dayton would have likely been easily tempted to engage in all sorts of things that he couldn't do before. And like many kids who rebel against controlling parents, he went way too far. Yeah. Well, Dayton's victim was taken to Sacred Heart Hospital, that was the one I was born in, with a very serious stab wound to her abdomen. She almost died because of all the organs in that area. When she was questioned by staff, she at first said she stabbed herself with a hunting knife, but based on the wound, it didn't make sense that that had happened. The hospital staff told the police that she could not be questioned until she got out of the ICU, but that she was brought to the hospital by Dayton Leroy Rogers, who claimed to have found the girl on the street. The next day, the victim's mother contacted the police. She had been able to get the real story out of her daughter. She and Dayton had been driving around in his car when out of nowhere he stabbed her. She didn't really even see him do it. She just felt the pain and looked down to see the knife protruding from her belly. 
The victim was afraid of Dayton, that he would come after her if she told the truth. The police told her she would protect her from him. She then told her story. Apparently, the day before she was stabbed, the two had met and hit it off. They even had sex. He took her home, and they made plans to see each other the next day. Quote, we were holding hands and swinging around. Then we sat down. He was tickling my legs and said to close my eyes, and we lay down on the ground. Then I felt the plunge. I thought at first it was a rattlesnake had bitten me. Then I thought it felt like a horse had kicked me. I looked down and saw the hunting knife. Dayton said, quote, I just couldn't trust you anymore. I pulled it out with my left hand. I was bleeding. I said, Dayton, I love you. And he said, oh my God, what did I do? Dayton then asked her to marry him, even though he was married and she was bleeding from a severe stab wound. She begged to take him to the hospital, which he finally did, as long as she promised to tell the doctor she stabbed herself. Courtney? So far in Dayton's life, he has never known love or affection without violence. They are now very clearly linked in his mind. So if expressions of, you know, quote-unquote love were not done perfectly as he imagined in his fantasies, he would react the way his father did with seemingly random and brutal violence. It's just so weird. He stabs her and then proposes to her. <laughs> right. I think um, in we watched a documentary about them, mm-hmm. and I think they mentioned something about how he'd been like expressing like his love to her and like seemed to get upset when she didn't express it back in the same way. But she could tell that that's what he needed from her to to not let her die. Because after like two days of knowing each other, who am I to judge? I mean, he's also married and she was 15. Yeah. You know. So I can judge that. You can't judge that. (laughs) (laughs) The police brought Dayton in for questioning where he admitted that he may have done it. She apparently didn't reciprocate one of his hugs in the way he wanted. So that's what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And so he must have been taken over by the devil and stabbed her. He was in shock by what happened. That's what he said. He then helped the police find the knife, the girl's bra, and the knife sheath before he was charged with assault, then released on bail. So the police went a long way in protecting the victim, let him out the same day they played a tape of her saying Dayton did this to her and she was afraid he would come after her. That was sarcasm. I mean, it was the 1970s. I know. But she, like, said that. She's, like, Mm -hmm. she was afraid to tell the truth because she was afraid he'd come after her. And then he admits to doing it, and they let him go the same day. Yep. Whatevs. On October 27th, 1972, Dayton had his first of many psychiatric evaluations. He was subject to some interviews, and the good old MMPI, which I just keep seeing pop up everywhere, Minnesota multifacal personality inventory. <laughs> Multiphasic. Phasic. But yes, very good. Otherwise. Facal's not a word. <laughs> <laughs> he did recant his confession of stabbing the girl, insisting that she must have stabbed herself. The psychiatrist concluded that, quote, it is my opinion that the defendant at this time does not have a mental disease or defect which would from the basis for an form the basis for an adequate defense against the charge of first-degree assault under Oregon statutes. I feel the defendant falls into the classification of depressive neurosis, probably superimposed on long-standing schizoid personality disorder. 
There is no suggestion at the present time, nor at the time of the alleged crime, that either of these emotional disorders would render the defendant incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong, of being aware of the criminality of an aggressive act or assaultive act, or diminish his degree to form intent to commit such an act. Sorry, guys, that was a mouthful. Well, in the end, he pleaded down to second degree assault, pled guilty, and got no prison time and was placed on four years probation. Ronnie? Well, going back to the psychiatric report, um, I actually think that schizoid personality could be a good diagnosis for Dayton. You know, I found this paper. um, It'll be in our our notes at the bottom. um, That was written by a psychologist named Peter Chadwick about his own experience with SPD. um, And it sounded familiar to how Dayton was described. Chadwick explained that he often felt lost in his own thoughts and fantasies, had difficulty with his thoughts blending together, um, and that his emotions were often simplistic, which could lead to callous or selfish behaviors, Um, which kind of sounds like as we get more into like the descriptions of of Dayton could fit. Um, But regardless of whether that diagnosis is accurate or not, Dayton stabbed a teenage girl in the stomach, and that certainly deserves more than probation. Mm-hmm. Not even six months later, Dayton popped up on the police radar again. This is a fucked up story. Dayton invited two apparent teenage runaways into his house, and I believe they were about 16 years old. He would have sexual interludes with them. Well, this caused Julie, his wife, to leave. She moved in with some friends. Dayton, of course, could not have that and threatened to kill all of them if Julie did not come home. Julie decided to come back. Now, Dayton was drinking quite heavily at this time, and one night when Julie was out, he became very drunk and very violent. He attacked the girls with a beer bottle and beat them with it. When he was done, he freaked out and took off in his car. The girls were luckily able to call the police and report what happened. Dayton was arrested after he crashed his car into another car when he was drunkenly driving that night. He was charged with second and third degree assault with the girls, or for the girls, He again met with a psychiatrist, a different one at this time for an evaluation. This report was different. Quote, there is a strong possibility that the evidence for schizophrenia has been in every instance fake and that this man presents a case purely of sociopathic personality of the antisocial variety. It is strongly recommended that Mr. Rogers receive intensive therapy for an inpatient unit and that substantial proof of his cure be demanded by the court prior to his release. Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Uh, Now, Dayton had very obviously violated his parole, you know, that he just got um, in this situation, and prosecutors wanted to send him to prison, but the judge found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was committed to Oregon State Hospital in Salem on March 6, 1974. Courtney? Well, we are very clearly seeing an escalation in behavior from our friend Dayton, Um, and I believe that something shifted for him after his first assault. And he realized, you know, that he enjoyed the feeling of hurting someone else. Like we've seen with other killers, you know, once that first seed is planted, it is hard to stop the fantasies and urges to do it again. I'm really not sure why he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, given that the doctor's diagnosis was that he was a sociopath. Um, And it is not clear what made the judge think that he could not tell right from wrong. They didn't go into it in the book. It was just like, that's what the judge did. There was no, I don't even think there was a trial. I don't, 
I'm not really sure. Hmm. It was not very much outlined, but it was, yeah. The judge just found it. Hmm. Weird. Well, Dayton was placed in a maximum security um, part of the hospital, and it was said that he was rather grandiose and self-centered. He lived in what seemed like a fantasy state. It sounds like he was acting like a full-on narcissist at this point, but he was smart. He realized that acting like a haughty asshole was only going to prolong his stay, so he altered his demeanor. He, quote, responded to group therapy and counseling and started to cool off on his self-important act. He was transferred to a lower security unit after a while, and he learned how to work the system. He was put into a sex offenders group and then sent to the minimum security ward of the hospital. When he was in the sex offenders program, he expressed that his fantasies were getting more and more violent. He categorized them into fantasies, which he could control, and hallucinations, which he could not. He told of his fantasies of raping and torturing women while he was having intercourse with his wife. Sometimes his fantasies and hallucinations would, as he put it, quote, turn him on, or sorry, turn on him, and the women in these dreams would attack him, causing him to feel threatened. He, quote, achieved great pleasure from the masturbation violent fantasy episodes and explained that they were really better than actual sex with a woman because he was in total control of the situation, end quote. Courtney? So I want to circle back to the idea of schizoid personality again. Um, So he's described as if he lived in a fantasy world, which goes along with Peter Chadwick's description of getting stuck in his own mind. And arrogance and selfishness are also common descriptors of those with SPD because they don't really seem to care about other people. Um, And there's sort of a sense of what um, Chadwick described as a vacuous personality that they can experience in which they really just take on the personas of those around them because they don't really know how to be a person on their own. Um, So I think more evidence that this is something that could possibly fit um, could also be narcissism. Obviously, we're going to talk more about his crimes and stuff later, Mm -hmm. so things develop in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a weird way... You know, by admitting and discussing his detailed fantasies while in the sex offender program, he was actually participating in treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, does not necessarily mean that the treatment was helping. Right. And, um, you know, the fact that he admits that, like, the violent fantasies kind of take over and sometimes he... he, Because the way he was trying to describe it was sometimes... They were fantasies, and he knew where they were fantasies. Mm-hmm. Then sometimes they would be so intense that they would become hallucinations, and then he couldn't control those. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if he's admitting <laughs> then right. that he's having these violent fantasies less slash hallucinations, I mean, they can clearly see that he's going to be dangerous. I mean, I, I feel like that's obvious, but... Right, yeah. And I mean, the fact that while in this program, he was sent to a lower degree of security mm-hmm. in the hospital while expressing these violent fantasies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of scary. Does he get out early? Probably. We won't know, though. We'll have to find out next week. Till next week. All right. Yes. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening. And also, please tell a friend. And check out our social media. We're so close to, I think we have... 998 followers on Instagram. Yes. We're so close to a thousand people. And we are so close to 25,000 downloads. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but we if appreciate you, you guys. Yes. 
So if you don't already, please like, follow, subscribe. Um, we're on most things as Addicted to Murder Podcast, except on Instagram, Instagram. which is Addicted to M Podcast. And our email is Addicted to Murder Podcast at gmail.com. So please, if you have any questions or anything, as long as it's nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, like I said, and be safe. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.